When you search online for romance book retellings or retellings books, you will probably just find a list of books and no theory behind why retellings are so darn popular. And listen, that's not a bad thing. But as always, we here at Raging Romantics like to question things. <laughs> a lot. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> so this month, we're looking into retellings within Romancelandia. We're going to look at the good, the bad, and the illegal. Ooh. Yeah. <gasps> Let's go ahead and dive on in. Hey there, romance nerds! Welcome back to another episode of Raging Romantics. I'm Jen. I'm Jackie. And this podcast is brought to you by Northern Onondaga Public Library. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about all things related to Romance Landia. With that being said, please be aware that sometimes our material may be a little too sensitive for younger listeners. If you need to wait until they go to bed, we'll still be here for you. So without further ado, are you ready, Jen? Oh, I'm ready, Jackie. All right. Let's rage! Hey, Jackie. Yes. What did Robin Hood say to his girlfriend? Oh, God, what? Sure would like to be your Valentine. (laughs) (laughs) You get it? It's a fairy tale joke and a Valentine's Day joke. And a retelling because there's Robin Hood retellings. Thank you. I liked that. That was beautiful. That proving once again that Jen is the master joke teller and pun maker here on this show. Thank you. It's a hard job, but somebody's got to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do we have any news to catch people up on? Nope. Okay. Cool. We had another really good month last month. Oh, and good. I just want to say thank you thanks. guys. Thanks again, as always. We'll keep mm-hmm. saying thank you because we're still astounded that people <laughs> listen <laughs> that aren't the people we make listen. So thank you all for listening. And um, yeah, okay, cool. I, I'm ready to get into this. All right, like, let's, let's go. dive right in. I want to hear all about retellings today. Okay, so. First and foremost, I'm going to apologize because this month is one of those months where we can't help but use the word to define the word itself. (laughs) Retellings is really hard to describe because, well, the word says it all. So we're going to make a game out of it to help pass the time. Try and guess how many times we say the word retellings in this episode. Shoot us an email at ragingromantics at nopal.org with your guests, and the winner will get kudos and a shout-out on the next full-length episode. And if you want a pin, let us know. We have pins now! Thanks again to Jess. Ooh, thank you, Jess. All right, anywho. I've been wanting to take a look at retellings in romance for a while now, and after last month's fan fiction discussion, I figured, what better time? Retellings are something that are popular in literature in general, but especially in spaces like romance Mm -hmm. and YA. They're the classic stories that have endeared themselves with readers for years, and they're stories whose tropes, characters, settings, and plots have been rehashed and reworked many times over. So many times, in fact, we could even go with the argument that every single book is actually a retelling of another book, story, or myth, if we were so inclined. Yep. There's no original stories. No. We have made this argument before, and it really stands to reason. For example, Fifty Shades and Twilight were both rewrites of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Don't worry, we'll get into the Twilight argument later on. Yeah, because that was a dream. We'll get into that. I doubt she's read Shakespeare. We'll get get into that. Anyways, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, in turn, was inspired by Shakespeare's mini-play within a play, the act of Pyramus and Thisbe within Midsummer Night's Dream, which was probably, in turn, inspired by the 14th century Geoffrey Chaucer's work, Legend of Good Women, or more likely by the Roman tale of Pyramus and Thisbe by a dude named Ovid in the first century CE. Ovid, in turn, took it most likely from a Babylonian mythos, when we don't know where it comes from before that. Britannica, that's as far as Britannica was able to mm. source it. But you get where I'm going, though. Yeah, right? no, that's really cool. It's all circular. 
It is. We're going to get into that circularity. It all comes back around. Circular. We're going to get into that later Mm. on, too. It is kind of comforting, though, that we are kind of retelling the same stories over and over Mm. again, that there's something about them that just speaks to even our ancestors. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess you can also be like, oh, that's so boring. Why aren't we original? Blah, blah, blah. But I think it's kind of nice that we have something in common with people 2,000 years ago like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so in this episode, we're going to kind of dive into, like, the theory behind retellings and, like, why we think they're popular. Mm -hmm. Next episode, we're going to look at some of the most popular... um, retellings like the most popular motifs and tropes that are out there and stories that are constantly retold Mm -hmm. at least in the western world and that jen and i are aware of in romance landia so make sure to tune in next time for that and we'll kind of get down into the nitty gritty of like specific Mm -hmm. stories but for this one of course we're sticking with theory so in reality who knows how many stories or books today claim to be inspired by romeo and juliet but do they pay homage to these other works shakespeare derived his tale from nope they really only go back to shakespeare And there's the rub. At what point is a retelling, a derivative work, or homage no longer unique? And when can we say that it is still derived from something else? It's really a bit of a chicken and egg Ouroboros situation where we could just keep talking ourselves around and around and around in circles. So instead of talking ourselves into knots, (laughs) which (laughs) I didn't even pick up that joke. (laughs) Thank you, Jen. Thank you. I mean, it's not the werewolf episode. We won't get into it. Oh, I'm sure we could find a retelling in oh. the Megaverse. <laughs> Maybe I'll do a deep dive for that. But instead of talking ourselves into knots for this episode, I thought we could talk about the why. Why do these stories get retold so often? What makes these tropes, plot devices, characters, and or storylines so popular? Why do they resonate <laughs> with so many readers? Why are there so many comparative titles out there that claim this as the next Game of Thrones or that as a Cinderella tale? And yes, I know Game of Thrones is a romance. It's just I've been seeing so many of that recently mm-hmm. in comp titles. I mean, honestly, Ruby Dixon is guilty of that too. Because yeah. after Game of Thrones was done, I saw a lot of Facebook ads of like, hey, pick up the, the Dragon Books yeah. as the next Game of Thrones. Yeah. So... First up, I think it's important to take a look at what actually constitutes the different levels of retellings. Because yes, there's more than one kind. As Meg Donahue said on LitHub, retellings come in all shapes and sizes, with some adhering strictly to the plotline of their source of inspiration, and others using the older novel as a springboard to something entirely new. So in this episode, we're going to dive into the nitty gritty with this. So just bear with me for a few minutes, more than a few minutes. You guys know I like to get rambly. This is theory. We're going to talk it out. There's a lot of theory to talk about. I want you, dear listeners, to envision a flowchart or maybe a chain when it comes to the retelling schema. We're going to start all the way at the top and work our way down link by link. Don't worry, there aren't that many links. So there's like four at most. So at the very top of the chain, the very first chain in the chart, chain in the chart yeah i guess you could say it's a chain and anyways you have the original tale the og story what everything should or does claim origin from this is obviously a gray area because as i pointed out we can say almost every story is a retelling of another but to simplify things we'll say for now that these original works are often named in the retelling they're generally well known and tend to have very common archetypes these are stories such as Pride and Prejudice, Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, Hades Persephone, etc. These original stories, though they themselves may be derivative works, are taken generally as the foundation for the new modern retellings. Take An Offer from a Gentleman by Julia Quinn. Quinn can say it's a Cinderella retelling, but I bet she doesn't claim derivative work. That's a really hard word to say, by the way, derivative. 
I bet she doesn't claim derivative work from the 6th century BCE Greek story about a Greek courtesan who has one of her shoes stolen by an eagle and flown all the way across the Mediterranean to drop it in the lap of an Egyptian king. It's instead easier for Quinn to claim inspiration from Cinderella and not the Greek story. More readers will recognize the Disney or Grimm rags to riches story, and that's Grimm with two M's, capital G, and will be attracted to reading it. That brings us to the next point. There is an element of claiming to these quote-unquote original stories. We're inspired by what we know, right? And as we learn in fan fiction, we're inspired by what we consume. Chances are 99% of people who are writing Cinderella retellings aren't going back to archaic Greek legends or even to the 9th century Chinese fairy tales. Instead, they're looking closer to home, to the Disney versions inspired by the Brothers Grimm and other European versions of the same tale. I actually just had this happen to me in a YA fantasy I was reading that claimed to be a retelling of Goose Girl, and my mind automatically went to Shannon Hale, Goose Girl, uh, the book I grew up reading and loving. It's a great book. If nobody's read it and you feel like reading a middle grade book, go for it. The book I was reading, Little Thieves, didn't share any common elements with Hale's work, though, so I got super confused, and I had to go to Google. Mm -hmm. Upon Googling, I learned actual Goose Girl fairy tale, which is obviously much bloodier than any middle grade novel is going to make it out to be. I was also listening to the Fate of Mates podcast, which is hosted by Sarah McLean and Jen Prakup. Jen, I'm sorry, I probably just say, said your name really wrong. We know we can't say names on this show. And in one episode, they were talking about how, re as readers, we feel a certain ownership of the text, and we take something differently away from the story itself. This, in turn, this ownership, this how we feel when we read the story as an individual, is in turn what inspires all the different takes on all these different retellings. Suffice to say, these original tales that make up the first link in the retellings chain and that retellings claim inspiration and origin from aren't always the actual ground zero for the story itself, like I said earlier with Shakespeare. But their tropes, characters, and plots are all recognizable, for the most part, and they're a common element that the majority of modern readers will be able to easily identify as origins for newer takes. Even though these quote-unquote original tales themselves might be derivative like Cinderella these original tales are claimed as the jumping off point and I really just talked myself in a whole big wide circle I know like I said it's gonna be very circular it was beautiful thank you Jen do you have any questions about this first link these nope. OGs okay cool you're great okay on to the next link in the chain from this original tale you will have straightforward retellings a retelling is exactly what it sounds like you, word to describe a word I know it's a derivative work where an author takes a classic story and reworks the characters, the plot, the setting, and the situation in a new way, thus creating a completely new version of the original. However, at this level of the retelling schema, the characters retain their names or a variation of their name and the arc of the story for the most part. For instance, let's take a look at the Lunar Chronicles by Marissa Meyer. This isn't romance, but I think it's an easy example to talk about in this situation. We've mentioned the series and author a few times now, but if you aren't familiar with it, it's a series of sci-fi, fantasy, YA, and YA as young adult books set in space on a lunar colony, and each one is a reimagining of a classic Disney or fairy tale trope. Cinder reimagines Cinderella as a cyborg during a plague. Scarlet makes Red Riding Hood friends with a street fighter named Wolf as they go searching for her missing grandmother, and so on and so forth. The characters keep the same names, and even though their settings have changed, I highly doubt Brothers Grimm uh, imagine their characters living on the moon. <laughs> we know who the characters are, and that something bad has happened to Grandma. If we want to look at Romance Landia, Hades and Persephone stories have been seeing a major revival recently, and we're going to talk a lot about Hades and Persephone next time and why that's such a romantic tale. 
even though it's a bit cringe when you look at the original. Yeah, I think it depends. Yeah, it definitely. <laughs> I think the Webtoon series War Olympus is really to blame for this. It's got gorgeous artwork and tells the original myth in a new and fun and just really pretty way. From there, Scarlet St. Clair came out with her Touch of Darkness series that takes Hades and Persephone and puts them in a modern Olympus where Hades is a business owner and Persephone is a university student and reporter who wants to do a story on Hades, which really makes it feel like Fifty Shades. <laughs> pretty funny so let's look at something less <laughs> 50 shades was, was it a retelling of 50 shades mm, we could talk about that oh let's oh god i know i don't think that's how it was meant <laughs> at all but let's take a look at another series I, mean, is, I don't want to say it's a common trope but oh god like look at all the mafia books yeah and you know there are some mafia reporter romances yeah. that i can think of it's Maybe it's something about like the reporter looking for the truth, yeah. looking, and it's like a very intimate thing where you drawn in. Yeah, you like sit across from somebody and ask them questions. Like yeah. I could see people thinking that's like a good meet not maybe not a good meet cute but like a way to introduce characters to each other yeah it's a very easy way to get the plot rolling so i'm gonna cross my fingers and hope it's not specifically a 50 shades retelling it's just something kind of tr- common no, I think it was definitely more geared towards Hades and Persephone. <gasps> it wasn't my favorite retelling, but I, I think I might be. Anyways, okay, let's move on. Please. Another Hades Persephone <laughs> retelling. Let's look at the Dark Olympus series by Katie Robert. Get used to it. I'm going to be talking about it a lot this she month. Has been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love this series. Book one is another Hades Persephone retelling, but in an urban fiction setting with shades of mafia light and some magical world building. In this story, Persephone escapes to Hades' side of the city, looking for protection from her mother, Demetrius plots and to escape an arranged marriage with Zeus. The story progresses much like the original Greek myth and in the end Hades and Persephone are married and Persephone works out a deal with her mom to visit the other side of the river aka get out of Hades undercity every so often much like the original myth where every six months she goes between Hades and the upper world. As we can see from these examples, straightforward retellings will very openly claim inspiration from their original work, and it's oftentimes easy to identify that original work because the details are the same, if not slightly changed. I personally think that these types of retellings are getting less popular in traditional fiction because a lot of readers might claim that they aren't quote-unquote inventive enough. And in a market completely saturated with new, unique voices, this can be a hard pitch to sell to a literary agent, a publisher, or even a reader. I don't that I don't know about because I feel like people still go for that stuff. Mm. Hmm. I don't know. That's to think about that one. Okay. I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I guess I don't see that many. I guess I don't see as many retellings anymore. But I think certain spheres mm. are really full of retellings, yeah. like the Greek sphere. Yeah. So for people instance, are obsessed with that. I mean, stuff. Achilles and Patroclus. We have yeah. Dark Olympus. We have Hades and Persephone right now. But I mean, I'm thinking of like the Cinderella stories. Mm-hmm. There aren't really any. Were they named Cinder or Cinderella yeah. outside of... They take, like, kind of the, the elements of the trip yeah. without the actual packaging. And that leads us to the next type of retelling. Hey. Something slightly more derivative than the previous link in the chain. And these are homages, which is a really fun, pretty word to say. Homage. So an homage is a derivative work that shows respect or attests to the worth or influence of another original work. So these stories may retain the names or the plot arc, or they may not. However, they still claim influence influence from the original story, like Jen was just saying. So, for instance, Wicked Beauty, book three in the Dark Olympus story, retains the characters and their traits, but ships a threesome that is nowhere in any of the original Greek mythos. Jen, take a wild stab in the dark at this. I will tell you it's MMF, and the MM is an original ship. Isn't this the one that's Helen of Troy? Yeah. And, um, Ark, uh... 
Patroclus and Achilles? Yeah, yeah. Achilles, Patroclus, and yeah, Helen. You've been, you've been talking about it. Yeah, it was, it was really good. <laughs> Call me crazy, but I've never seen that pairing anywhere, mostly because they're like two completely separate myths, although they take place both in Troy and anyways. But it was really Well, fun. I feel like usually if you're going to pair those two together, you'd pick them with the the servant Achilles had. Oh, um, Briseis. Yeah, thank you. I yeah. feel like like in a, like that would be a cool one. Yeah, the three of them together. Helen of Troy is kind of interesting. It was an interesting take, and I really liked where they went with it because mm-hmm. they made Paris a complete. Uh, I almost swore a complete uh, butthead. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think he he always is. Regardless, yeah. he's always seems but like a terrible person. But it really person. came out in the story very mm-hmm. well. Yeah, is it like a cheating romance then? Like, is she married to him? No. Oh, good. Okay. So they were dating prior like prior to the storyline and then when the story breaks out um there's a lot of interesting world building that's hard to get into in this but basically helen wants to take a governing role in olympus Mm -hmm. and so to do that she has to compete like at this like olympic trial right and so it's um everybody's competing but then at the same time they're also competing for her hand Uh, so it's almost like a merida situation where mm -hmm. she's like i'll compete for my own hand okay sorry for the bad scottish accent but that comes out in June, right? Yeah. That, <laughs> Anyways, back to the homage. That's the fun part of homages. They take their inspiration from the original tale, and they can really just kind of flip it right on its head. Fanfic is an excellent... Hey. Yeah, it's an excellent example of this type of retelling. And as we learned from last month, fanfic writers will take things that we know and love and pay tribute to the original stories in completely new ways. Oftentimes creating ships... Remember, ships are relationships that are setting sail into the beautiful golden sunset that aren't anywhere in the original tale, like Achilles and Patroclus and Helen, or Styles Stalinsky and Derek Hale. (gasps) That rhymed. Oh, it did. Hey, look at that. Um, Or putting the characters in completely different situations. Now, I will venture to say that homages are also the most popular and the most widespread type of retelling throughout Romancelandia. It's really easy to be inspired by an original story, invent a whole reel of new characters and plots, and toss elements of the original story in like a salad. Jen hates salads, by the way. Leaves are the worst. (laughs) Why do you want to chew a leaf? Because they can be yummy. No, they're not. It's just a big wet mess in your mouth, and you're just like, going my cow, too. Well, with that delicious Ugh. imagery in your head, go eat your vegetables Ugh. and <laughs> hydrate. <laughs> anyways. Just let me die a pirate's death. <laughs> oh, anyways, or homages are where you get those blurbs that claim this as the next Cinderella story or what if beauty never met the beast, etc. Certain things will feel familiar to the readers when they approach an homage, but a lot of the time the setting, the characters, the arc all have absolutely nothing to do with the original story. And of course, you can very easily have a spectrum of homage, all the way from easily identifiable to obviously inspired by, all the way up to, well, they took a shade of that character there and put them in plot setting B with love interest 82 and so on and so forth. For instance, Brazen and the Beast by Sarah McLean is a Victorian historical romance that McLean herself has said is a twisty retelling of Jane Eyre minus the wife in the attic. Uh, spoiler alert if you haven't read Jane Eyre, sorry, there's a wife in the attic. <laughs> But when you read the description on the back of the book, very little reminds you of the original story. Instead, Mr. Rochester is rewritten as a bare-knuckle fighter in underground London. Jane is a spinster bookworm who is set to inherit her father's business, and yet somehow there's elements of that dark, twisted romance that Bronte readers would love. Don't ask me how I didn't get that when I read it, but I still love the book, so hey. 
Another super popular homage is A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Moss. I think readers are easily able to identify this as a retelling of Beauty and the Beast. In this book, we have Feyre, a human girl, who gets taken into the Fey realm and to a mystical manor house. Ooh, that's fun to say. Mystical manor house. Uh, by a Fey high lord who shapeshifts into a horrific beast. Spoiler alert incoming. Fast forward 30 seconds if you haven't read this book yet and might be vaguely interested starting now. It is up to Feyre to fall in love with the beast and break the curse to free all of the Fey realm, all by a very specific date or the Fey will be cursed forever. In short... There's a great variety of homages, and they run the spectrum of easily identifiable based on their source material, all the way up to obscure references and Easter eggs that fangirls like myself know and love. It's really all a gray area once you get into a homage, because technically speaking, all homages are retellings, but not all retellings are homages. Once again, talking in a circle. Jen, any thoughts? Nope. <laughs> no thoughts, just vibes. No. <laughs> just enjoying it. <laughs> okay. And finally, we have the uh, final level of this weirdly shaped pyramid flowchart sieve chain thing. We have the illegal. We have ripoffs. Illegal? Mm. Okay. We'll get there. We will get there. Not all ripoffs are illegal. I will say that. But um, These are exactly what they sound like. They are derivative works that pay no deference to the original work and instead claim the source material as their own unique idea. They might be sp- so bold as to take names, settings, plots, story arcs, etc. from the original work. And they do not cite the original work in any way whatsoever. Another easier way of naming these is copyright infringement or plagiarism. But alas, this is really hard to prove in terms of literature, thanks to the fact that it's difficult to actually claim something as an original idea. We can look to a very recent court case that debated this very thing. Jen, can you take a stab at what that case was? We talked about it on the podcast. Oh, so we did talk about it in Scandals. Is it the Cockygate one? Cocky gate and then there's the Addison Kane one. Too. Oh, that one. That's the yeah. one you're bringing up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, I completely forgot about Cocky gate until just this moment. <laughs> so uh, let's instead talk about Addison Kane and Zoe Ellis because it was huge. Um, this case has to deal with copyright infringement and what makes an original idea um, original or not. This was in our Megaverse and Scandals episode. There was like this whole argument over who gets to claim an original idea, what is sin and when something is actually plagiarism. If you want more of a breakdown of those claims in detail, go to listen to those episodes. I'll have them linked in the show notes or their numbers 28 and 30 on the episode list respectively. Long story short though, Addison Kane, um, an author who claims to have started Omegaverse with her Bane fanfiction, accused Zoe Ellis, another author, of ripping off Kane's quote-unquote original idea of Omegaverse and using it to publish her own books. In the end though, Kane was unable to bring her accusation to fruition because her publisher, Blushing Books, ended up offering a settlement to Ellis due to some other weird legalities and bad moves by Kane, to be frank, um, and the copyright claim was dropped. The ironic part... Kane's Omegaverse was inspired by Bane from Batman. So can she even say that that was an original idea? Well, the whole Omegaverse was really started by supernatural fan fiction. Yeah, that's So too. it's like, pff, okay, Kane. Yeah. <laughs> She's kind of backtracked on those claims now, but the screenshots will live forever. Everything lives forever on the yeah. internet. Unfortunately. <laughs> Another excellent example we could talk about is Twilight. Because, yes, the majority of the literary scene, what literary scene deigns to talk about it, <laughs> agrees that this teeny vampire fic is a Romeo and Juliet retelling or an homage. Meyer herself says, no, it's a unique idea I got from a dream. To which I squint my eyes and say, okay, Jan. I mean, Twilight has the whole teenage love affair, star-crossed lovers, they end up dying, and yes, they get reborn. 
born, whatever. So she didn't like allude to it at all, though, because I thought that's why Bella was always reading the classic books and why she was like constantly. Uh, uh, she was like one of those girls that was obsessed with classics and was like, oh, it's so much better than the other. Two. Look at them, so classic. She was like one of those characters. That girl. Yeah, yeah, she was that girl. Yeah. So I thought it was like a specific thing Mayer was doing in spite of the whole, no, I had a dream exactly. that I fell in love with someone who could kill me. Exactly. Yeah. That's so the like thing. she says it's totally she, original. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Stephanie. Yeah. No. I think she has like backtracked kind of on the sense of no. I mean, there's like some inspiration, but she's like, no, this is an entirely original idea. Then, like, I got from why dream. have Bella so obsessed with these books? Like, right. it very much felt like a thing. It's very much a pick me girl. Thing. Yeah, it was not like a the curtain is blue because it's blue. It was no. like, no, I'm putting this in here because it is based on these kind of yes. classical conventions. Yeah. Yep. Stephanie. Yeah. Ugh. Of course, Shakespeare would have written it a thousand times better. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean Shakespeare he would have put in more vampires? That would have been awesome. Listen, he would have put in more bad jokes. Yes, a lot of bad puns. I can't say the, the word I'm thinking of, but you know <laughs> what I'm thinking. Um, ripoffs, like I said, they're really hard to prove in a literary scene because when can we say that something is original versus when is it inspired or when it is when is it a retelling? Most authors will gladly own up to being inspired by an older original tale, trope, or motif, but some, <clears throat> Meyer, are still out there trying to pull the wool over our eyes. And of course, the term ripoff implies there's monetary gain to be gotten from these actions, like when purse manufacturers fake, uh, fake designer handbags, right? Which leads us to the fact that there are people out there who are brazen enough to straight up take a book, a story, mm-hmm. plagiarize it, and publish it under their name. Janet Daly. There's been a lot of this happening actually recently on platforms like Kindle Unlimited and through indie pub websites. Christina Syria. Yeah. Soraya. Whatever. However you say her I name. I don't, she doesn't deserve to we, have her name We really correctly. don't care about that one. And it's proven really difficult for authors to sit down and name names of those who have straight up stolen their ideas. The original authors really rely on the readers to go out and identify and flag this copyrighted material because as an author, especially an indie author, they're an individual person. Yeah. But in the age of internet copy-pasting, who knows how many sources are out there with your materials not claiming inspiration from you. Mm -hmm. To be honest, this is one of my fears as an author. I had somebody... Um, had a publishing house, an indie publishing house request like a full manuscript. And it was mm-hmm. my first full manuscript yeah. request so they could read through it and see if they wanted to publish me. Long story short, no, they didn't. Um, but I was like, how do I know me sending out my manuscripts, my ideas, my like entire 110,000 word work, that they're not just going to copy paste it, repackage it and sell it on their own and make mm-hmm. monetary value. So that going down the road, if I try to like – be the one yeah. <laughs> to publish it how do i know that they're not gonna be like oh no we publish this first it is kind of i wonder how publishers deal with that kind of gray area i guess it's not a gray area it's a good question i don't know has yeah. there been a case of publishers stealing that i want to say yes but i can't say specifically but mm-hmm. it's i feel like it has to have happened okay. by now mm-hmm. maybe that's something we can ask a, a future author yeah, in a could. future interview maybe we have, uh, there we go coming up soon all of this to say, it's really hard to identify when something is a ripoff versus when something is a legitimate retelling or homage. Because nine times out of ten, the derivative work is shaped in such a way that it may not be readily evident that it's the original story simply repackaged by a different author. I feel like I, what's it's kind of boiling down to for me is if people are willing to give credit to their inspiration. Yes. It sounds like a lot of the examples you're giving is if it's a ripoff, people are going to be like, no, it's not a ripoff. It's all mine. <laughs> like, they're not going to say, oh, no, I got this from Cinderella. I got this from Sarah McLean. I got this from Jackie Hoyt. They're not yeah. going to be straight up about it. Yeah. It feels like the ripoff people are more like, 
no, underground. This is mine. Yeah, I wonder if maybe there's a concern if they claim it, like they could be sued. I wonder. Maybe some of it is just like a genuine desire to like not open yourself up for lawsuits, and maybe some others are like embarrassed that they didn't have more original ideas. But like we talked about, there's really no original ideas anymore. There's no shame in it. Yeah, I think the the problem is the the credit though yes and i think going along with that credit and like i said monetary gain back mm-hmm. at the beginning yeah or not even the beginning just a few minutes ago to be honest it's like look at when you do a youtube video if you do more than 30 seconds of a song in a youtube video you have to pay copyright fees mm-hmm. on using that song or something along those lines um versus within a book how much is it before you have to start paying copyright? So mm-hmm. in nonfiction, when you're using um, source materials, for instance, so if you open up a nonfiction book and there's pictures in it, the author and the publisher had to pay um, fees to mm-hmm. whatever archive holds those pictures and source materials and to the owners of that estate. They have to pay fees to use it in their mm-hmm. book. Um, and then they have to pay royalties on it to the source material owners as they get their own royalties and as authors it's a whole big loop but in fiction you don't really have that mm-hmm. unless say you are using um pictures and artwork that come from actual people um i think maybe if it's something that is copyrighted but i don't know i feel like things that are copyrighted you're not really going to easily get permission to use that stuff right so you kind of have to wait for things to be in the public domain yep you kind of have to get that permission which again like i don't know why you would go out of your way to to pay to write like a Winnie the Pooh story or something. Yeah. And then if it's not copied directly, you know, like if somebody sat down and copied word for word, Ruby Dixon's Ice Planet Barbarians, Mm -hmm. easy. You can like get her off the platform, fine, whatever. But if somebody else wrote a story about blue aliens on an ice planet and stranded human women, I mean, it's harder to pin specifically on Ruby, even though that is very similar to ice planet. Yeah. And then at that point, I don't know, do you pay Ruby? Do you not pay Ruby? Like, I, I'm very glad I'm not a lawyer. It all goes back to that question, when is something original, when is mm-hmm. something derivative, and when is something a ripoff? And usually nothing's original. No. So, you know, that's no. an easy start. Exactly. I was laughing because <laughs> I was looking at a Goodreads review the other day, and they're like, why are none of these titles original? Why is everything a, a retelling of something else? Aren't there no original ideas anymore? And somebody <laughs> underneath was like, no. <laughs> there aren't. <laughs> so... That's kind of a whole wrap-up of what retellings are. Of course, there's shades of gray within all of those. There's multiple different types. You know, you can have a bit of this and a bit of that and a splash of this and another salad dressing of that. Do you like ranch dressing no. at least? You don't even like ranch what dressing? Why would I put ranch dressing pizza. on? Why would I, it's pizza. Why do I need it on pizza? Because it's delicious on But pizza. I can have marinara and cheese. But, but, uh, anyways. That's anyways. so weird. People put ranch on pizza? I do. I put it on my pineapple pizza. Oh, God. I'm that person. Just keep going. No, I don't want to know that. So we're going to shift gears completely away from pizza and salad and types of today. Don't bring up salad. I'm so so hungry. And salad is going to make that better. Uh, the salad I had last night had chicken in it and it was better. All right. right. Let's do that. I don't want to talk about retelling. I don't want to talk about salad. Shifting gears. Let's talk about the question Jen and I love to ask, and probably why we annoyed our parents so much. Why? Why are retellings so popular? What makes everyone want to read a new Beauty and the Beast adaptation, but no one really wants to read a Titanic set in space? I think they would. 
Why wouldn't they? There is one that just got published. Yeah. It was sci-fi horror, and it was so good. Yeah, see, so people want that. But in romance, it didn't really end happily. I guess if you did a you retelling could. where they got together at the end, and they, like, went off into a lunar colony. Well, like, Jack if it's and- space, he's in a, he could be in a space suit, and he just floats, and she has to go and, like, build a, th- a ship to go and find him. See? Yeah, There you see? go, authors. You there can do an it. idea for you. Now, um, give that to you for free. <laughs> there you go. In my mind, there are a few different elements for what makes retelling so popular to modern readers, and we're just going to talk these through. Um, And those, in my opinion, are familiarity, obsession, popularity, and inventiveness. Yeah? Mm, yeah. Okay, let me go. I feel like you're missing one, but we'll go through your reasons first. I know, I feel like there's more, but we'll start here. So, first and foremost, familiarity. We've talked about comfort reads before, and those are books or fics that you keep coming back to because you know the story, you know the plot, you know the characters, and they're just comforting. They're a big, warm hug that makes you feel some sort of way. It's also really nice when you're feeling stressed or just overwhelmed because since you know everything about the book or fic, you know where it's going to end. Of course, in Romance Landia, we all know it's HEA guaranteed, but that roller coaster of emotions, the content warnings, the spice level, all of it is a given when you come to your favorites and your comfort reads. So retellings of those comfort reads can hopefully offer you the same level of familiarity while still offering you something new. Look at last month when Jen had me read the, okay, I learned how to say this the right way, Dramini. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Dramini fanfic. Mm-hmm. And I literally described it as a great big warm hug and then was inspired to go forth and write a whole series based on it. <laughs> when as readers, we see something pitched to us as a retelling of a favorite or as a comfort read, we know what to expect, mostly. We know based on context clues and previous readings that what the characters are going to be like and what we can expect from the plot, mostly. It's exciting because it's something new within our favorite world, but it's also comforting comforting because it's familiar. Yeah, okay, Fanfic. I can see that. Fair enough. It's why I think fanfic stay is so popular for the most part because it's our favorite characters, but mm-hmm. maybe taken in a new way or put in a new setting. But we know the characters, and like I said, we know their traits. Yeah, I mean, I could see a familiarity kind of argument can be made for fanfiction. Yeah. All right. Next up is obsessiveness. And I, as a mood reader and general fangirl, embody this wholeheartedly. When I find something I love, I go straight down the rabbit hole and consume everything I can related to that book or fic. I think the easiest example of this right now for me is the Crescent City series by Sarah J. Moss. Book two in the series just came out last week, and I devoured everything I could, including the book. I've been going down fan art and, yes, even fanfic. <laughs> we got her! I went back we got her, to guys. AO3. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was blown away by some of the stuff on there. I was like, what? No. <laughs> no. We did it! You did. You can hang up the headphones. I can (laughs) retire happy. Gold star for Jen. Good job, y'all. But I've been obsessively also watching TikTok and Instagram and theories about the universe and the pairings. I bought merch. I trolled Etsy. And I generally gave Mm -hmm. into capitalist consumerism that drives the Western world when it comes to this specific series. It's so tempting. It is. There's like, there's so Mm -hmm. much out there. I mean, I bought a Fabio shirt, so I can't judge you. And I keep looking at banned book shirts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, I just came across like a whole um, Etsy shop devoted to Ice Planet Barbarians. Mm-hmm. There's so much I want to buy. They have a really cute enamel mug mm-hmm. with like a gold rim on it. And then I've been wondering about too where the line is with merch like that. Right? Like, do you give anything to Ruby Dixon for that? Is she cool with that? I mean, maybe I'll email Ruby. We should ask her at some point. I know with Sarah J. Moss, there's licensed and unlicensed, like we talked mm-hmm. about with Marvel and fanfic. Yeah. Um, because I've been seeing a lot of um, A Court of Thorns and Roses people recently get licenses from Sarah J. Moss. Oh, and from 
do this stuff. Mm -hmm. So they're like, I'm now licensed by SJ Moss. I'm not as worried about Sarah J Moss. I'm sure she's a millionaire by now. But like Ruby Dixon, I want her to get her money. Yeah. Like uh, I would definitely buy Ice Planet Barbarian merch if it was like directly from Ruby. I don't know about some of these other... Maybe from other people. I don't know. I know, know. she sponsors I think a about lot it. of fan art people. That's true. She does have a lot on her page. Yeah. I am mean, wondering about that. But, like, no, it'd be <laughs> really cool to have, w. like... <laughs> yeah. It would be cool kind of to have, like, a sweatshirt or a, or a bag or something. But I will email her, okay. and I will update you guys on the next cool. episode. I was hopefully. not that interested in the Etsy stuff. I thought some of the Etsy stuff was, like, uh there was a cute beanie that said not hot. Yeah, National no, I think Park. I said that. That was cute. But like, yeah, the National Park stuff is cute. All the cute stuff is sold out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. All right. But anyways, retellings really feed into this obsessiveness. While the Crescent City series isn't necessarily a retelling, although it does borrow some tropes, but nothing more, it helps serve a key point that people like me will literally consume anything and everything we can, even remotely related to our favorite original work which includes retellings in all shapes and forms. Mm -hmm. I love Greek myths. I was that girl in elementary and middle school who was like, did you know about the Trojan War and about Achilles and about Zeus? I was that person. I wanted to be a mythology professor for like three years in middle school. I thought like that was a real real career path I could do. And then I looked at academia and I was like, no, thank yeah, you. Yeah, oh, yeah. Never mind. I got all the way into college and I was like, mm, wait, no, never no. mind. <laughs> if you ever look at an academic librarian's eyes, there's just... It's just dead inside. I'm I love sorry, you guys. All my friends going into academia. I love you. You're never going to come back the I same. I will send you as much cheese and adult beverages as you desire. <laughs> but anyways, Greek myths, I love them. I will tend to read any retellings in that category I can get my hands on. So when Katie Robert, of course, started coming out with spicy new takes on some of my favorite Olympian pairings and some pairings I hadn't even thought of, I was on it quicker than you could spit. And listen, there's absolutely nothing wrong with fangirling and obsessing over your favorite things. Just don't, you know, become like a stalker or anything. Uh, as you talk about emailing Ruby Dixon. I give her boundaries in space. Only because you don't know where she lives. I have theories. <laughs> God. Don't get this no. restraining ordered. No, I won't. I'm not that. I I Please, I can hardly leave my house these days. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, you shouldn't. It's COVID. Exactly. Don't go out during plague time. I would time. rather sit in my chair with my little yeah. nest with my books and Doctor Who. Anyways. Mm-hmm. Speaking of capitalist consumerism, my next theory as to why retellings are so popular in the literary scene is popularity. And of course, popularity is just another word for sellability. In the last fanfic episode, I made the point of when a bandwagon's good, you jump on it. And publishers and authors jump on it. Jump on it. I almost missed it. No. (laughs) But publishers and authors have really pushed this idea when it comes to popular tropes and stories. It's why the romance market is completely flooded with Hades and Persephone retellings at the moment. And why fae and fantasy romances have been doing so well on the indie scene. Or aliens in the Kindle Unlimited scene. Mm -hmm. Or monsters currently are doing really well. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's some really good ones out there. Monster boyfriend. Because I can't say the actual term without having to pay a dollar. (laughs) I mean, technically it's not because there's a D in there. Anyways, um, if something's really popular, readers, because of that obsessive factor, are going to consume everything they can within that niche for the most part. Which is going to lead authors to write more within that sphere and publishers, because of capitalism, to push for more of these same tropes and subjects to publish and get money and to keep publishing. It's a giant machine. And because this whole thing is giant cyclical movement, when something fades out of popularity, it will inevitably come back into style sooner or later and will spiral right back down into obsessiveness again. Hence why retellings go through seasons, just like scrunchies. 
Yeah. I love my scrunchie. You do. You I rock a scrunchie. scrunchie. I can't. My hair is like, I don't know. My hair doesn't like scrunchies. Well, it's good for your hair because you know. shouldn't have the little rubber bands. That's bad. I use rubber so bands I get, that like, I use nice, on my horses. No, and I get the nice one. I get the nice velvet ones now. Oh, there you go. I have mm-hmm. clippies now. Oh, okay. Because my hair's long. Yeah. Anyways. You got to take care of your hair. Yeah. So any thoughts on obsessiveness and popularity? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Good job. No thoughts, just vibes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm thinking of my points. Okay, okay, okay. And finally, we can talk about inventiveness and retellings. Remember that cyclical season of consumption I was just talking about? Retellings feed right into that machine. Right now, Hades and Persephone is huge. But sooner rather than later, it's going to start fading back into the machine. And we'll move on to the next trend obsession. Monsters. But eventually, someone's going to come back with a new version of Hades and Persephone. Or with some new Greek retelling in some new inventive way that readers hadn't thought about before. And we'll start right back down that spiral with people consuming, binging, rehashing, rewriting, selling, and talking about these Greek-inspired retellings all over again. So, I don't think you're wrong. I think those four things are definitely factors. Okay. I do think you're missing, though, that I find a lot of these retellings, especially going back to your earlier point about how this has all been so circular forever, that these are stories like our ancestors told to each other. Mm -hmm. I think there is an aspect of these are lessons Mm -hmm. we used to teach each other and we learn from. And then I also think these are things that we hope for. Yeah. So I think some more of those kind of like crunchy internal reasons are why retellings are really popular. Crunchy internal reasons. Yeah. Well, because like when I think of retellings, I think of like something like like red riding hood where the mm. it seems like the story is always like be careful with strangers yeah uh or things like or the stranger you know yeah or things like cinderella where the real hope of cinderella is that your goodness will win out and you'll be rewarded or something like pride and prejudice where even if you have a bad first impression there will be people that will look at you and <laughs> Jen's looking at me <laughs> <laughs> okay well they'll be, they will be people that will look at you and like really learn the inner you and will not be judged by these first impressions and, and like by your pride. I think that's kind of the oh, stuff that keeps the ti- us. Oh, I yeah, it's pride and title. prejudice. Yeah, it's because he was I'm so sorry. prideful and she was prejudiced against him uh, because of like the first impressions. I gotcha. Yeah, I, never I think put two and two together with the title. Okay. And then obviously, like with the normal rags to riches story, it's like yeah, you're gonna constantly be rewarded for doing the right thing, or it'll teach you again: be careful with strangers, don't get off the path. Um, I think those are really important reasons, too, for why we are so obsessed with these stories. Or, like, Beauty and the Beast, where, like, yeah, people will love you even if you're beastly. You know, once you get, like, to the deep internal entrance. Entrance. So. (laughs) Sorry. The internal stuff. (laughs) The deep, crunchy reasons. Yeah. So, I get. Not to be all hippie. Okay. So, I'm going to pull the English teacher cynic right now. Uh Uh-huh. What about modern romance books still imbibes those lessons? I think a lot of them do. I feel like... I feel like Beauty and the Beast, yes. Mm-hmm. But I don't know so much about, like... <sighs> like the Cinderella. It's more of the rags to riches, I feel like, I think that too, but I think, I think an important aspect of Cinderella is that she has been abused by her mm. stepfamily for so long. Most of them had been. And yes, yeah, so, so like there is kind of like the overarching, like, oh, she's going to be you know, kind of lifted out of that situation. But I think it's also somebody notices it. Mm. So like somebody sees that she has gone through this and helps her out of it. I think it's also important, not so much in the original tale. I think we put a modern spin on it where she realizes, oh, hey, I've been mistreated. And this is how I'm going to grow as a person. Mm. And like we'll grow out of that trauma. Okay. I think we kind of add on these these more modern spins yeah. that I think we kind of psychologically need with some of the earlier retellings. Like the old retellings, like, 
you know, Maslow hierarchy of needs. They were very worried about the basic, like yeah. be a good person, be nice. Somebody rich will marry you and get you out of this situation. Yeah. Now we're like, no, we want somebody to see our inner stuff and okay. let us grow and let us like evolve as a person. I think we're more about evol- like evolving inner, now. Like mm-hmm. our, looking at our inner selves yeah. versus like, our outer so I think in some ways game. we're almost like kind of expanding on those original yeah. legends okay. with kind of like more of the things we need because okay. we've kind of moved up in the world you get an A plus for class today thank you good job Jen <laughs> but anyway no I mean yeah your points were really good but I think there is these these more internal kind of like not basic in the the way slang is basic but just like a basic human kind of hope that these things happen to us yeah or that, like, the world is really like this, and it's usually not, which I think is another reason why we cling to, like, Cinderella, Beauty and the yeah. Beast. Escapism. Not even escapism. It's kind of like what we hope it could be. Hopeism. Yeah. Hopeism. Hopeism. I don't know if hopeism is a real thing, but. It is now. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. thank you. That was very well put. I tried really hard on the top of my head. And it will lead us beautifully into next discussion. Woo! Yeah, but we're going to save that for next time. Okay. So, um... That wraps up our first foray into the world of retellings. And, uh, yeah, don't forget to tune in next time as we take a look at the most popular retellings, in our humble opinion, in Romancelandia. There's going to be lots of books mentioned next time, too, so make sure to bring your notebook because you'll have a lot more books to add to your TBR. Um, you can always email us at ragingromantics at nopal.org. Right? It's nopal.org? Yeah. Yeah, I just totally blanked on our Good own job. email. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Which Jen now also has admin access to. I can to. see you. So really don't yell at us now. I will cry. I will still be the one to yell back at you. Well, so. we can't really yell as librarians, but like we will internally shush. cry. We will shush you. I mean, we could shush you. Yeah, probably. That we're probably allowed Shusher. to do, but we can't actually yell at people. <laughs> but we can sit in our bathtubs and cry if you're mean to us, which I... <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that's all you're doing. <laughs> Yeah, so email us, but be nice for Jen's psyche, please. (laughs) Um, As always, thank you to Northern Onondaga Public Library for sponsoring this podcast. And we can't wait to um, talk to you next time. Okay. All right, Jen, what do I always say? Rage on! Bye, guys. Bye, guys.